first time I was on an airplane was 1955 on a Lockheed Constellation from uh, Cleveland, Ohio to Miami, Florida. And in those days, there had never been a hijacking. Mm-hmm. Uh, so nobody concerned themselves about such matters. And uh, my grandfather uh, knew that I built model airplanes and loved airplanes. And so he um, got the pilots to let me up front. And, uh, you know, I just, I loved it. And so I, I, I always wanted to fly. I just, most of my life, I didn't think I was smart enough to do it. And, um, uh, there came a time, uh, when I was 30 something, 31, 30, I don't know. I just decided I was going to learn how to fly. I started out flying, um, gliders, sailplanes, uh, not, not hang gliders, but, uh, Planes that had a cockpit but no mm-hmm. engine, so you took them up in the air, towed them up with a an airplane, and you pulled a big red knob, and it released the cord, and you were flying, and you tried to go from one thermal to another thermal. Mm-hmm. It's much like being a hawk, where they yeah. circle. It's air pockets. Yeah, every underneath every cumulus cloud, there's a there's a column of rising mm-hmm. air, and so there's a bunch of different ways you can do sailplaning. One way is that way, where you go up in the column till you get close to the bottom of the cloud, and then you break out and head for another one and do the same thing, and you can try to go a distance that way. That strikes me as being more terrifying, is not having an engine on board. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I don't know. It wasn't to me. But anyway, there's that. There's also, I think it's orthographic, is I don't know. But anyway, it depends on the geography. Because the Earth slides under the atmosphere, there's always a prevailing wind from the west. And if you get on the... Uh, west side of the ridge of the Appalachians and you get up to altitude, you can just sail along on the edge of that rising air and you can go a really long way. I know at one point the record was 1,500 miles just sailing along on that. Then other places is out, places like Nevada where there's a desert. You can get really high mm-hmm. on the hot air coming up from the desert. I think there's a, there's a very complicated airspace over the world regulated so that people aren't running into each other. There are a couple of holes in it out there in Nevada where you can get up to 60,000, 70,000 feet without being in anybody's way, solely set up for people who want to try to do that kind of stuff. They have a really good glide ratio, those things, so they stay aloft for quite a long time if you can get into the right circumstance where there's hot air coming up from the ground or lift created by the geography. So it started off as a hobby. Yeah, I just wanted to do it, and it was really cool. To The, the wonderful thing about sailplanes is that once the once you pull that knob and you're released into the air it's completely quiet slight sound but you're going so slow it's not much of sound at all and i loved it and i decided that it was frustrating because in ohio where i was doing that uh you can't you can't it's very difficult to stay aloft for any length of time if you, if you can get up there for a half an hour that's a big deal so i was kind of forced to get in the place i was doing this was a kind of a club and they were more interested in hanging around drinking than they were in flying so it was very frustrating so i i Joined a, a, a club and learned to fly an airplane with a motor on it. And then I became an instructor. And then I decided that I wanted to make a living at it. And so I flew a bunch of charter, um, not all of which was legal. I ended up with a corporate job. And at one point they sold the airplane, which is, you know, most corporations can't really afford an airplane. Mm. It's a, it's a perk for somebody. It was a private jet you were flying CEOs around? It wasn't a jet. It was a twin, uh, piston engine, mm. a, a Cessna 421 C model draglink gear turbocharged engines, I think. But a private plane for? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was for an, an oil, a chemical company, a blending company. And then they sold it and the hangar that, 
they had been keeping the airplane in was a hangar that other businesses kept planes, and I so I became a day pilot. I just was a guy who was available to fly people. And I decided that if I was going to do that for a living, I really needed to get on with an airline whose business is just flying. They're not. It's not a perk for somebody. I heard about an airline called Masaba Airlines that was expanding its operation into Detroit. They were looking for ground personnel. I thought if they're hiring ground personnel, maybe they're hiring pilots. Mm-hmm. And they hired me. They were part of the Northwest system. And I uh, flew for them for a bunch of years, flew fit pistons uh, and jets. They re- had to retire their certificate when Northwest was sold, and they were bought up by Delta. And uh, when they retired their certificate, they had operated for 68 years without ever killing anybody, which is a very respectable record. Mm-hmm. Then I became part of the Delta system, flying twin-engine jets for Delta. The the company that was called Endeavor, but it it was owned by Delta, operated by Delta. People bought Delta tickets. Planes were painted Delta. I flew New York to Houston, whatever. You know, The range isn't enough to go coast to coast, but if you make one stop someplace, you can get to the other coast. So you should fly New York to Mini, Mini to Washington State or... New York to Houston, Houston to L.A. or something like that. You're flying three, four-hour stretches, it sounds like, on some of those. Mm-hmm. Are you still getting that kind of initial exhilaration that you had when you were flying these oh, gliders around? Yeah, I loved it all the time, always. It seems like there's kind of long stretches where there's probably not a whole heck of a lot happening. Oh, that's true. But um, it never got dull for yeah. me. The, the cloud formations, the hmm. landscape, the colors – Everything. It's interesting. Uh, navigating around thunderstorms, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. That's all very stimulating. So it was less a case of you getting out and more of a case of it just no longer being Oh, no, an no. Option. It's the law. You're 65. You have to retire. As far as music, did you go straight from being a professional musician into a pilot? or? Yeah. I, um, I took two years off from the band. And when I took those two years off, I, I got interested in flying. I went back to the band after the two years, but... I'd made up my mind that I was going to make a living as a pilot, so hmm. I did it for two more years, and then I retired. And I, I, I think I did my last tour in '88, and I cut a couple more records with Ubu. The last one was in '91, and that was the year I got hired by the airlines. I worked there till 2015. It sounds like you made a concerted effort, though, just that when you started flying to pretty much give up music in general. I was done. I had no. I really didn't think I was going to work anymore, and and I was. It was fine. Uh, it was a kismet. I got a phone call from Robert Wheeler, who's the guy who took my place in Ubu eventually, ultimately. that's I mean, he's there now. And he said, there's some guys making a movie. It's a documentary about people that played analog synthesizers, and they want you to be in it. And I wasn't going to give them your contact information unless you told me I could. And I asked them if they were interested in him, too. And they said they were. And I said, yeah. Okay, and so we went to Toronto where it was filmed. It was filmed actually in Hamilton, Ontario, at a studio called uh, Grant Avenue Studios, which is a fairly famous studio. I had said to the organizers of this thing that if it worked out that Robert and I could play together, that I'd be interested in doing that because we had never played together. And there was EML equipment brought in uh, as kind of props for the shoot, but it worked. And there was a fellow there by the name of Bill Blakeney who seemed to be, I didn't know him, but he seemed to be a facilitator. He wasn't the guy shooting the movie, and he wasn't the guy who owned the studio. He was just a guy who was the contact guy for organizing plane tickets and all that kind of stuff. And he's trained as an engineer. He makes a living as an attorney, but he's trained as an engineer. And anyway, Robert and I started playing. When we were done, Bill came into the studio and said, how long do you think you guys were playing? And I said, I don't know, 
20 minutes, half an hour. And he said, two hours, and it's all on tape. Then we came back the next day and played some more, and at the end of it, he said, you know, you got enough material here for two CDs. I really think you should release it. And I, I mean, it had been so long since I had been involved in any of that kind of stuff. I had no clue as to how to even go about that. And he said he'd take care of it. You know, I was involved in deciding tracks and titles and all that kind of stuff, but he had come up with the material, and he wanted to put it out, and he had organized all that. I still really thought that was the end of it. That was in February, I think, and Christmas time that year. I got a package in the mail, a theremini, a Moog theremini, and it was from him. <laughs> and it was like, it's quite the gift. And it was a present. Yeah. yeah. And I thought, how am I going to thank this guy for yeah. this thing? And I thought, well, the only way to thank him is to make something with it. And, you know, I started out with a tape recorder and a synthesizer back in the, in the 70s. So that was, you know, I was just figure out how to use it like a tape recorder. Yeah. And I started making stuff and I sent it to him. And then he sent me another synthesizer. And I thought, all right. <laughs> I got to make more. And I did. And then he sent me another one. And eventually I had to tell him to stop. You had to tell him to stop sending you synthesizers. Yeah. Because I don't have, I live yeah. in a, you know, one bedroom apartment in Manhattan. So he was very supportive. You know, every time I would send him something, he would say things about it, good things, but also sometimes useful things. Mm. And I just kept working. I made a, a record after that that was just solo with me and it was called The Pharaoh's Bee. And uh, I kept working. And um, after I had a bunch of material, I I called him up and I said, you know, I kind of feel like – and I send him stuff via Dropbox. So, I mean, every time I finish something, I send it to him. I said, I just feel like this could use some percussion. And I – So he sent you a drum set? I said, I said I would like – I kind of like to get Chris Cutler to come over here and yeah. put some percussion on this. And he said, well, I don't know if we can afford to get Chris Cutler over here, but I got another idea. And so I went up to this – back to Grand Avenue Studios and a fellow named Joe Sorbara came and we spent the day and he worked on some stuff. And as it happened, the, the, the engineer, Bob Doidge, also plays the trumpet. I said, look, while we're working on this stuff, if you at any point hear a trumpet on any of it, please – Tell me, and let's do it. And he did, and so there's some trumpet on there. So there's horns that are synthetic horns. There are horns that are his horn. There's percussion that's synthetic percussion. There's percussion that's analog percussion. There's a little bit of everything on it. Were you producing any kind of music in the, in the meantime when you were working as a pilot? No, there's a 20-year gap or a 15-year gap. You were able to just give it up like that? Yeah. And I was able to just start it up again, too. Yeah. And, it, and it, it's clear to me that even though I wasn't playing, I evolved from mm. where I was when I quit. I can't imagine having done something for, for that long and, and doing professionally. And obviously, you had a passion for it to just give it up out of the blue. Was it the industry? You were just done? You felt like you said everything you needed to say? It's a good question. Some of it was the industry. I remember we used to be able to make a record for like twenty thousand dollars and have money left over and by the time i left the record company was putting two hundred and fifty thousand dollars into them and a lot of it was going to a producer and i didn't really see that we were getting anything out of the producer and i didn't really think that the music had the same edge to it that it had 
when we were doing it for less money and, and just doing it all ourselves, doing everything ourselves with an engineer. So there was that. The record label was hoping for sort of a more commercial enterprise than the band really was. I think everybody that had anything to do with Uber was always hoping for a more yeah. commercial enterprise than what they got. And at some point, you know, obviously, you know, you get to a certain age and you want to you want to lead a fairly comfortable life. Well, there's that. And I don't know to what extent they've succeeded at that. I mean, I, I you know, David and I maintain contact, but I have no idea what his life looks like. Wheeler is the grandson, great-grandson of Thomas Alva Edison's sister, and he is the curator of the Edison farm in Milan, Ohio. So he's, you know, part musician, part farmer. Um, he has a pretty nice life, but I don't know how much of it he has as a result of the band. Yeah. So there's that, but I, that really wasn't what drove it for me. What, and it was that I wasn't, I never really liked touring. That was one thing. Uh, so I didn't like that very much. There's a lot of angst in a band. A bunch of very different people in a closed yeah, space for an extended yeah, period of yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got tired of that. I just felt like I'd had enough. And I walked away from it. But I remember people saying, how can you do that? I, I don't know. I could. At what point did it occur to you that you could actually be a professional musician? I don't think it ever occurred to me. No? I mean, at some point, though, you did actually start making a living doing it. Well... It's a Cinderella story. David was really the driving force. Yeah. He was the guy who had the connections and, and whatever. But we would borrow money. We would make a 45. We would sell it on consignment at a local record store. And when we made back enough money to pay back the loan, we'd get another loan, make another record. Basically enough to sustain you. Yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a lark. And uh, we didn't realize it, but there was an A&R guy from Mercury Records who was collecting them. And he showed up one day and gave us a record contract. <laughs> And, you know, it was literally the case that we went from playing in a club that had been closed on Tuesday nights, and they said, all right, we'll open on Tuesday nights, you guys can play. I don't even remember what the agreement was, but whatever. And it literally went from, sometimes they wouldn't even turn the heat on, so you'd have people standing on chairs to get near the ceiling where there was some leftover heat, I guess, maybe 50 people in there, to literally getting off of a, an airplane at Heathrow and getting picked up by a limousine overnight. That's kind of what happened you know when you're 26 years old that's pretty exciting stuff yeah. you know and i mean we did some really great things i mean that was during the time of the cold war berlin was in east germany there was a corridor road that went through east germany to get there you had a, a limited amount of time to get there they monitored that road they didn't want you wandering away we played places on the other side on the you know russian side of the iron curtain the soviet side of the iron curtain where we were the first american band to have played since before the second world war i mean it was a, a unique and wonderful experience to see all that and to have that um but it wore out i got the distinct impression reading interviews with you that they had to twist your arm a little bit when it came to actually performing live in the first place again we're back to airplanes you know i they were going to do this song 30 seconds over tokyo and one of the to me one of the most beautiful sounds is the sound of a, um, an airplane rotary engine it really is a consistent theme in your life isn't I'm it i'm afraid it is yeah <laughs> and um i i wanted to make engines for that song and you know that was not what people did at the time. It was unusual, but I didn't know it was unusual. I didn't know anything about it. So I did it. And the deal was we were just going to get together. It was just a band that was going to get together and make a record, and then we were going to break up, and that was it. And I thought, yeah, fine, I'll do that. Because I'd been working with a synthesizer and a tape recorder for a while when I got invited to do it. So I thought, yeah, I'll just I'll go back to that. And then they wanted to be a band. And I thought, I just don't have any interest in this, and I don't have any idea how I would use this thing live. It didn't have yeah. a keyboard. It didn't have – it was just knobs and – 
and wires. And so I didn't join. I, I said, yeah, you guys, whatever. And, and a guy took my place, Dave Taylor, I think was his name. And I would go to the shows and I would, I would watch and listen. And I, after a while, I thought, well, you know, I probably could do it. And I probably felt like I was missing something. And so I said, you know what, I'd, I'd like to come back. And they, they canned him, which wasn't fair, but they did. The rest is history, but I was never enthusiastic about it. I have to imagine it is difficult to recreate those. I mean, you know, the impression that I get as far as you as a person making music is that you're kind of above all a tinker. I can't reproduce any of that. It's all, everything I do is improvisational. And so I don't write stuff down. I don't keep track of a patch. I don't, I don't record any of that stuff. It's all live. I lay down a track. Eventually, it suggests something to me. I lay down another one and so on. What do you mean by eventually it suggests something to you and that you're just really just jamming on something for an extended period of time and something arrives out of that? Sometimes. I mean, I, there's a lot of different ways that I work, but that's one way. I mean, sometimes I just get a sound and I just like it and I'll just record it and I'll listen to it and listen to it and listen to it and decide, you know what, I like that part of it and I'll take that part of it and then I'll... Mm do something with it, and then I'll listen to it for a while, and I'll think, now I hear another sound that would go with that, and I'll, and I'll come up with that sound, and, and they just come, they get built like that, yeah. one track at a time. I can't ever go back and find that sound again. If somebody said, this track that you put down has got a lot of problems with it, can you just, can you just make that, can you come up with that sound again and redo that track? The answer is no, I can't. Is that frustrating? Is that liberating? I love, I, well, love is a strong word. Um, <laughs> no, I like that. One of the things I, I, I use, the program I use to record is Logic Pro yeah. 10 X. I assume that's 10. It's 10, yeah. And um, I've become very ruthless at editing, and I like that. I like putting stuff down and then taking stuff out. I, I read a, a, a book Stephen King wrote about writing, and he said that one of the most useful pieces of advice he'd ever gotten was from an editor when he, he used to be a sports writer at a paper in Chicago, I think. And he said that his editor told him, here's how you do this. First, you write the story, and then you take out everything that isn't the story. That was very useful to me. And so I do that. I just put a lot of stuff down, and then I just figure out, and then I just start taking stuff out. And I listen to things a lot. I mean, I listen to the same thing a lot of times, and before I, a lot of times before I hear what's there. And then I start taking stuff out. What do you mean by hear what's there? Hear what appeals to me in it, you know. Maybe in some of the in some of the pieces, it's a melody. I'll hear a melody in there somewhere, and I'm like, all right, I want to isolate that, and yeah. then I want to, and then I want to duplicate that. And I can duplicate within the thing. I can do it. I can't go back to the synthesizer and come up with the same sound, but I can manipulate things in the, within that program to duplicate things. Um, yeah, or. Uh, sometimes what happens is I'll lay down a track and I'll put down other tracks and then I'll realize that the fifth track that I've put down is actually the only part of it that's any good and I'll throw yeah. everything out and build from there. It sounds like you're spending a lot of time playing and then listening back to it. Yes. As far as the sort of number of hours you're spending playing and, and to some degree messing around, very little of that actually forms the foundation of a song. It can be. That could be true. Yeah. But there are other things where I just I lay it down and I keep it and I don't do much with it. I just keep it. There's a lot of different ways yeah. that I work. It's it's not any one particular way. But but in terms of like I mean I work multiple hours almost every day. Hmm. So you can make a lot of stuff if you do that. And so I have 
enough material for probably three more records. And a lot of it will never get used. A lot of it's just, it was an experiment that ultimately I decided didn't work out. The other day I listened to something that I didn't, I didn't offer to put on this record that I decided was a lot better than I thought it was. I just needed to get away from it for a while before I could hear it. So you went from not doing it all to really just being a fixture of, of your everyday life. That's completely true. Is it enjoyable now in a way that it wasn't before? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's extremely enjoyable. I mean, I love this. Using this program is really wonderful because it involves three of my senses. I mean, there's hearing, of course, but then I can actually see it and then I can mess with it. So there's a manipulative element to it Mm. too, you know, so it's just, it's just missing smell. (laughs) It'll be in logic 11. (laughs) Yeah. So I, no, I I enjoy it very much and it's, it's, it's hypnotic. And the other thing, I mean, of course, you know, like anybody who does, something that they're very interested in. Yeah, I lose myself in mm. it. You know, there's I you know, there is no past, there is no future. I'm just in the moment. That's a very peaceful place to be where you're just in the moment. You referred to it as kismet before the the, yeah. the timing. There's a lot of this that's kismet. And all of it coming back to you. I mean, do you get the sense though that had all those things fallen into place, save for people actually being interested in listening to this on record, that this is something you would still do on a regular basis if even if you never thought it would ever wind up on record? Yeah, I think I would. I mean, I feel now it's it's kind of I'm compelled to do it. I, I just enjoy doing it. But it is for sure the case that when I finished this record, I wanted I wanted people to hear it. You know, and Bill, again, you know, was, was very supportive and extremely talented himself. He said, you know, I think I think you got a record here. I think you got more than enough for a record here. And so I said, yeah, okay. I'll come up with the pieces that I think would make it work, and you come up with the pieces you think you'd make, would make it work. And in, initially, his position was, you know, you got two records here. So you got one that is kind of more melodic, more classic instrumentation, and one that's more abstract. Maybe you should do two records. One, of, and I said, no, no, I really think it's important that they're that they're in there together. And I think that there's a narrative there somewhere in there to be found. And so let's, I'll come up with the one that I think it is. And why don't you see about if you come up with one? And we, it sat for a really long time and nothing got done. He was kind of not responding to some of what I was saying in terms Mm. of like, why don't you come up with one? And I think he was maybe just trying to stay away from it for a while so he could hear it again. And ultimately when he did say, yes, I'll, I'll do that. And that was, a long time, maybe a year or months anyway. When he did, he came up with something that was actually pretty similar to what I had thought of, but I liked it better. And then he went and mastered the tracks and he again did some things that were a little different in the mixes than what I had done mm. that I liked better. We're very simpatico when it comes yeah. to working with this stuff is that he sees things very similarly to the way I do. Like that day that I said the called him up and said, I think we should, I would like to see some percussion on here. He said, yeah, I think so too. And he'd obviously been thinking about it already. So that kind of stuff goes on fairly often. What do you mean when you say narrative? Yeah, I was afraid you'd ask me. <laughs> I could see by the look on your face when I use that word. I think that the order of the tracks is a sort of a story. And I don't mean like a story that I could tell you because it's not like that. I just mean that there's a... The way the pieces fit together. Yeah, it's there's a a mood, uh, um, uh, or like a movement. Yeah, yeah. I know I can't sure. define it, but I feel that it is a narrative, and it's unfortunate because you know I'm told by people who know about these things because I don't that nobody listens to an album anymore. That most of the time they don't even listen to a whole song. Mm. 
So that's sad because I know that it's unlikely that many people will ever actually sit down and listen to the whole thing. They'll they'll hear they'll take a piece. Oh, I like that. No, I don't like that. I don't like that. And they'll buy three of the tracks off of iTunes or something, and they'll never listen to the whole thing. I suspect that that differs quite a bit from genre to genre. You know, this isn't really an album of pop songs. No, it's not. In a lot of ways, it it is kind of a jazz album. There there are a lot of jazz elements on it. That's really high praise. Is it? Yes. Yes, it is. I, when I was a kid, my house, when I was a kid, my house was full of music. My mother played the piano and my father loved jazz. And so I knew who Errol Garner was long before I had heard of the Beatles. And I still have his records and they're in very good shape. He was, he was very particular about his music, but uh, I love that stuff. And, um, I have most definitely been influenced by it. I mean, I've been influenced by everything that ever happened to me, but. Yeah, I'm influenced by that. So for you to say that there are elements of a jazz record on there, that's 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 a nice thing to hear. One distinction that I would make, however, is in the the creation process. I mean, jazz often tends to be a very collaborative mm-hmm. music. Yeah. Um, this is to some degree, but it sounds like a lion's share. You're really, at least in terms of composition, you're doing alone. Yeah, I am. That's true. And I'm and I'm getting better at it. You know, the percussion that I do today is better than the percussion I did 6 months ago. And yeah. the arranging I do today is better than the arranging I did 6 months ago. It is interesting though. The initial spark, the thing that got you back into music was really in a sense it was a collaboration, right? It was it the was. two of you sitting in a yeah. room yeah. making music on synthesizers. No, it's true. It's true. Yeah. You're right. Is this a personality flaw? No, well, I'm, I'm just I'm, I'm curious because obviously again a lot of it depends on what you do. I'm I'm a writer by uh-huh. trade, yeah. which is about as solitary as it as yeah it right gets. yeah right. Certainly, a lot of people are drawn to it. I, as we were talking before the podcast for the recorder turned on, and I said I interview a lot of cartoonists, and that's that's one of the most solitary jobs in the world that I can think of. I mean, mm-hmm. it really is just you sitting at that drawing table, and it certainly tends to attract a specific kind of person. But it is interesting, though, that what got you excited again was that collaboration, but you've gotten away from that. Well, I, well, okay. First of all, I set out to be a writer. That was what I wanted to do. And I wrote some stuff, got some stuff published. Let me just get a little bit closer. Um, but this, this took over. Yeah. It's more interesting to me to do this than it is to write stuff. But I think that I still approach it from that place, that solitary place. It's improved to some degree through collaboration. I mean, there's, there's this, you, you get to a certain point and you can't go any further with it and you need to bring an outside party to help you edit or yes. take out pieces. For, but also, I mean, is that, that different from having an editor look at something? No, no. Because sometimes, I mean, you never see, you never see yourself clearly. Yeah. Nobody does because you can't. Because you're the one who's looking. Especially, it sounds like you're, you're listening back to these things over and over and over again. And you lose all meaning if you approach it that many times. Well, I, no, I, well, I don't, I haven't yeah. had the experience of feeling that way about yeah. it. I'll tell you that. You certainly need to back away. But I do definitely, if I put it away and come back to it, I hear things that I didn't hear before. Yeah. That's true. And sometimes when I say I hear things I didn't hear before, I mean I hear things in there that I didn't hear before, and I also mean I hear things that should go in there that I didn't hear mm. before. You know, And I get influenced by a lot of stuff. I mean, I, I live in Manhattan, so I can be working on a piece, and there's somebody out there blowing the horn. And I think, right, a horn should go there. You know, Or I hear a siren, and I think, 
right, there's an element of a siren that could go there, you know, or whatever. I mean, so so I get influenced by stuff going around me. And, and part of that has to do with the fact that I recognize we don't ever listen to music in a vacuum. You know, there, there are other things going on when you're listening to music. So it's really a, a bigger venue than just what's there on the the disc, so to speak. It is funny. I was listening to on the way here. I say I'm blanking on the name of the record, but it was a. Uh, I guess it's like the, a New York City record, one of your albums, and and it does have some sort of ambient sound, some found sounds. And I was on the train, and I, <laughs> I had that moment that you have sometimes where you're listening to music outside the cacophony of New York, and you can't distinguish what's right. It ended up actually being uh, on a very crowded commuter train in the morning, a doo-wop band coming through, and I lost all sense of reality as far as what was in my headphones and what was actually happening around me. Yeah, and no, I, I think that's a great experience, actually. Yes, it, it, it does. I do need sometimes to get away from it. And it also, uh, in the case of working with Bill, it's, it's interesting to, you know, to try not to influence things sometimes just like i didn't say to him yeah here's the running order i think we should go with i really tried to get him to come up with one so that i could hear it and then compare it to my own mm. as opposed to trying to influence it you know and then also sometimes when he responds to things um he'll just uh, i mean not so much response to it but when he mixes things sometimes he hears it a little differently and it's and it's really useful, you know. And I, it was one of the pieces, uh, ladies in the garden. He changed the percussion around, and I said to him, I said, "Boy, that stuff that you put in there is really great." And he said, "I didn't put anything in there. I just <laughs> moved around what you did." Do you find that having returned to music and taking this approach that it's made you more in tune or more aware of your surroundings? I'm very aware of my surroundings. You know, as an aviator, yeah, something that is a very valuable commodity is situational awareness. Mm. I'm still an instructor for the airline, and um, that's one of the things we talk about a lot when we talk about threat and error management is situational awareness. And so I think I have a high degree of that. Uh, I think I always had a, a high degree of that, and working in that profession elevated it to a, f a higher degree. So I'm pretty aware of my surroundings all the time. I don't sense that this work has enhanced that. Perhaps that has enhanced the work is much more like is more likely. Talking to a lot of people who create different kinds of art, it does seem that the art that they create does really frame the way they see the world. You know, as, as somebody who talks to a lot of cartoonists, and when I talk to people who have to do a daily strip or a regular strip or do something that's autobiographical, they tend to think of the world in terms of beats, mm. you know, as they're, as they're sort of distilling that information and trying to figure out how they could put it on the page. They're thinking about the world in terms of panels. Well, I'll, I'll say this. I hear music differently mm. since I've been working than before. Now, when I'm listening, especially when I'm listening to, I don't know, most of the time I'm either listening to classical music or jazz if I'm not making music. I mean, my house is usually quiet. There's not usually any music in there at all. But when I do have someone thinking about how it's put together, much more than I used to. Yeah. So in that way, yes, it has. Does that make it any less enjoyable? No. No. In fact, it's, it makes it more intriguing. Do you think up melodies outside of the composition? I mean, it seems like everything really comes from no, playing around the instrument. There are times when I'll, uh, a, a, a melody will come to me and I'll uh, whistle it into mm. my, f my phone. And then I'll – I, I haven't actually used any of them. 
I've gone mm. back and listened to them, and they, I think they suggest things to me sometimes, yeah. but I haven't actually gone back and tried to recreate any one of them. Are you actively thinking and engaged, though, with the music creation process when you're not around the instrument? No. No. Not really. It's nice. I mean, it's, 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 it's a nice thing about the way that you've gotten back into it. Is it and even though you are making these records, it is a thing that you're doing for fun and for enjoyment. And because of that, it hasn't taken over your life. I have this problem, too. When I started writing, when I started broadcasting, a lot of the things that I enjoyed before, it's made them more difficult for me to enjoy because I become hypercritical. And in the way that if you take a lot of film classes and you start watching movies, and it can take some of that pleasure out of it. I hate it that people decide what I'm going to listen to. So it really makes me crazy that I can't go anywhere without listening to music. Mm. You know, you mean just from people's phones? Get a and coffee. You can't go to a restaurant. I mean, that stuff really gets to me. And um, it, there's such a lack of thought with mm. regard to that. I mean, if you're going to have an establishment where people come to talk to each other, it makes no sense whatsoever to have music on where people are singing because it's a conversation in your ear while you're trying to have a conversation yeah. with another person. It's just stupid. There's no thought that goes into it at all. That kind of stuff really bugs me. And I know that most of my friends are not nearly so sensitive to that as I am. I'll be in some place and I'll just get up and say, I can't, I can't stand this anymore. I'm leaving. And they're like, what's, what's wrong? And I go, the music is making me crazy. And yeah. Like, oh, I wasn't even hearing it. I guess that relates to what you're trying to say. I'm from California originally, and I was at school in, in Santa Cruz. I don't know if you've ever been, but it's really, it's it's the Redwood Forest. And, oh, yeah, I haven't. And I had this experience where I had moved out here, and I'd been in New York for probably two years, and I went back for the first time, and didn't even, hadn't even occurred to me that it had been so long since I had been in perfect silence mm. or perfect darkness, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, never, right. regardless of where you are, it never gets completely... Black. As as somebody who really, it sounds like you appreciate and revel in the silence, you've picked a terrible place to live. Uh, you know, I really like it here. Yeah. I mean, I don't love it every minute. No, but, but nobody does. My wife does. Okay. She does. She's. I think she's delusional, but... She's um, the one. No, coming here was my idea. She's the one New Yorker who, like, oh, yeah. all the time loves yeah. New York. Um, but it's true that even when I'm not thrilled... If I ask myself, where would you rather be? Yeah. I don't come up with anything. What brought of, you out here? In terms of living. Uh, I, you know, I, well, what brought me out here was we spent a lot of time in Europe touring. And I had the experience of uh, observing how Europeans lived. And that, you know, they didn't take the station wagon out and buy three weeks worth of groceries. Mm. They lived in a town that had shops. And they walked out and they got what they were going to use that day. And that's how they lived. It was a very local kind of an experience. And for a while, I wanted to live over there. But I, because I spent as much time as I did for as long as I did, I, I came to realize that this is, in fact, the best place to live, the United States. Much more accessibility to things, to ways you want to live, that there's not a class system, so to speak. Anyway, not as much as there is there. You know, whatever. So I thought, all right, it, it's the best to live in the United States. But then it was, okay, where could I live that I could live more like a European? And the answer was New York. And so that's really it. When I, my wife and I decided we were going to go live in a city where people lived and we were going to try to live in a place without a car. And where could we do that? And it boiled down to Chicago or New York. And New York was warmer. We lived in Cleveland where it was cold enough. Yeah. And I was like, all right, New York, I, you know, we just looked, did some research and it was like, New York's 
consistently 10 degrees warmer than Chicago. So we came here. And unfortunately, a lot of what existed here that I loved 24 years ago is now gone. Those, a lot of those little shops don't exist anymore. So little by little, it's being chipped away. I suspect it's being chipped away everywhere, but yeah. But still, when I think about, all right, all right, so pack up, leave. Where would you go? I, I don't come up with anything that I, any place I'd rather live than here. Are you somebody who goes out and, and enjoys the, the culture? I mean, do you, do you go to see music? Do you go look at art? What, what I love is the theater. And so Ann and I, uh, go to the theater fairly often. And we learned that if I, you know, wait till I buy a ticket that the show's gone before I get around to it. Mm. So we are subscribers to a couple different theater groups. And so you, now you got the ticket, you're going to go, right? That was the way we solved the problem. Obviously you live in a city. Uh, we live in a city with a, a lot of other musicians. I mean, do you, do you ever see yourself getting to a place where you feel like you want to make more collaborative, directly collaborative music? No. You're enjoying your, your solitary. Yeah. I mean, you know, things can change quickly. Yeah. You know, I didn't think I was going to do this at all anymore. Yeah. And that changed quickly. So that could change. But um, sometimes I meet people and they say, oh, you know, I could connect you with so-and-so. You guys could get together and, mm. and jam or whatever. And I and it's just <laughs> have zero interest in that. Yeah. You know? Some of it also has to do with the fact that I'm old, you know, I'm 68. So mm. there's things that maybe were more appealing. I'm not, you know what? I'm not even sure that's true, that it was more appealing when I was younger. I don't know. But right now, no, the answer is no. But making music is still a purely enjoyable experience for you? Like I said, I feel compelled to do it. Yeah. But what keeps me doing it, aside from that, I suppose, is that I, I lose myself in it, you know. It's a very peaceful place to be. I'm I'm working and I'm just I'm living in the moment. That's very that's a rare thing to be living in the moment, untroubled by things past or future. That was Alan Ravenstein. His new record, Waiting for the Bomb, is out now on Morpheus Records. Very much enjoyed that conversation. Thanks to him for taking the time to do that. Thanks to Ilka for helping set up that conversation. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. You can like us on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes or Google Podcasts or wherever you happen to get your podcasts. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rylcast.tumblr.com. That is the first best place to get all of your RIYL-related information. If you've got any feedback, it's rylcast at gmail.com. And that's about it for this week. So stick around because we will be back just about this time next week with another episode of RIYL.